I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I'm joined once again by Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back. Hey, Abby. So nice to see you and, and chat with you again. Yeah, always good to see you. I feel like both of us have just been so busy these past couple (laughs) months, but it's good to be able to have this chat every week. It's nice to take the time and slow down. I know I won't be here next week because I'm going to be on the road again. It's always like the end of my week too. So I feel like when I'm done here, I can go home and see my family and chillax a little bit. And I'm actually doing this this weekend. I'm going to see the Rolling Stones. What? Um, yeah, they're coming to Minneapolis. Oh, and very cool. Yeah, you know, I, I saw them a few years ago. I never had gone to see them before, and I went, and I was just blown away, not only by how good the music is. I mean, I've always liked the Rolling Stones, but Mick Jagger, I don't know how old he's, like almost 80 years old or something like that. I'm telling you, as a 40-year-old guy who I feel like I'm in pretty decent shape, I could not keep up with what he does. Like, <laughs> His the amount of prancing around the stage, it's like two hours of aerobics. Like I don't yeah. know if I could do two hours of aerobics. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> when people are um up on stage, especially the older people who are still performing, I mean, it is a lot of exercise. Tons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I used to play in bands and and I could play drums for four hours. I mean, I could. I can't now. Today, after like three songs, my arm feels like it's gonna fall off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you get a certain, like, endurance, but it's different when you're prancing around on stage and you're sitting on a chair behind a drum set. Yeah, um, I'm sure it's like muscle memory. Oh, yeah. It's it's <laughs> astounding what they do. So, anyway, sorry to delay our thing, but, yeah. No, no, that's great. And for those of you who are listening to this on a Wednesday, we always record this on Fridays. So, yeah, it's like, you know, I talk with Chuck and that's kind of the end of my week. So, I like doing this on Friday afternoons. Nice I feel way like to it's end a good flow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, totally. So um, let's get into the article that we're going to be covering. So today we are covering an article that was written by Scott Beyer from the Market Urbanism Report blog. It is called Modern Zoning is Incompatible with Modern Needs. The primary idea of this article is that regulating property primarily by land use has caused major mismatches between what is allowed and then what consumers actually want. And it's especially important as we are seeing major structural shifts in real estate. The demand for residential and warehousing space is increasing quite rapidly these days, while demand for office and retail has shrunk and their future remains largely unforeseen due to changes in workplace habits, online retailing, and the global supply chain issues that we talked about last week. So the author warns that current zoning codes are really not prepared to allow society to adapt in the way that it needs to due to strict separation of uses, which is making it really challenging to meet these demands. The the two primary pieces that, that he mentions is the need for warehousing and distribution centers to 
take up empty big box stores, which are located typically in highway and arterial oriented commercial areas um, where, you know, it's, it's well, well positioned for trucking oriented uses and then housing supply. So housing supply being um, a potential new use for existing office buildings that are in flux or won't be used to the extent they were being used in the past. And, citing kind of the distortions of zoning by limiting options and adding costs and, you know, the limitations and extra fees that are created through the regulations that are, you know, making housing costs quite high. So the author suggests that cities become more adaptable by updating their zoning codes, you know, focusing on these two areas of demand. And his final suggestion really is looking forward to consider a completely different approach to zoning that leans away from regulating by use altogether. So I think this was an interesting article because, you know, I, as somebody who works in and around zoning codes quite a bit, I, I think there's a point around when regulating by use is helpful and when it is not helpful. And, you know, it's like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so when you're used to regulating by use, you think that's the only way to do things. But the reality is that zoning codes have lots of different ways of regulating things. And there are ways to to mitigate, you know, nuisances or unanticipated consequences in a variety of ways that may not even just include zoning. But I think it is a good point that it is, it's important for cities to adapt with these kinds of shifts in mind. I used to be rather interested in the market urbanism conversation. It, it actually, I thought, was interesting in a way. And I've kind of, I'll use the word grown bored with it. I think bored is the right way to, to talk about it. But let's, for the sake of the start of this conversation, Let's, I think, dig into what the best argument is here, because I think there is a good argument to be made. I think it's incomplete, but I think it's, I think it's on its merits, it's a good argument. And that is that zoning, the way we have done zoning in this country, artificially limits options for people. And, and by doing that, it will stagnate properties and not allow them to respond to, to shifts in the marketplace. In the article, he uses you know a glut of retail right now and a glut of office space and a lack of housing in a large market like New York City. And that's all like really, really true. In these places, you have these massive office complexes that have been built that, you know, because of COVID are not being used. It's questionable on whether they will ever be used in the way that they're used now. And a lot of these places could, in theory, be turned into residential units and fill much needed housing supply issues. But the zoning code doesn't allow that. And so, you know, in order to do that, among many other things you'd have to do, one of the things is you'd have to go and get the property rezoned. I agree that that is a self-inflicted wound, right? It's, it's, a, it's a barrier that we've created. We've done it for even if you go back to, you know, you and I were talking a little land use law before we started. Even if you go back to the, like the early zoning days, you can maybe say, okay, some of this was for good reasons. Some of it was because we didn't like Chinese laundries, you know, in our neighborhoods. So, you know, some of it was for not good reasons. But if we try to be generous with people of the past, they were trying to address a real problem. And the real problem was that 
industrial age land uses created lots of bad conflicts. I mean, there were there was noise, there was smoke, there was soot, there was dust. And by having zoning and separating things from each other and keeping commercial over here and residential over here, and you could address some of those worst issues of the industrial age. That is so inoperable today. You know, it's not an issue today. And so the problem we're trying to address or we're trying to solve is a completely different problem that would have given us you know, Euclidean zoning and, and separating uses in this way. And if you take it a step further, we've actually become like obnoxious with it because in, in the very early days, it was like, well, we'll keep the smoke belching industry over here and then we'll keep the neighborhood over here. And now we've said, we'll keep anything that is potentially industrial, including, you know, I don't know, storage units, like what, what you know, is nothing that produces smoke or noise or anything else, but we'll, we'll keep that over here. And then we'll keep over here uh, $100,000 homes and we'll separate those from $200,000 homes and we'll separate those from half million dollar homes and we'll separate those from million dollar homes. And we'll do that by having a different R dash something designation in the zoning code. We won't call it by unit, but we'll do it by unit size and all this stuff. And so you wind up with this artificially segregated world that puts a, a throttle or a, a limit on a neighborhood's ability to adapt and adjust over time. And I think that that is a legitimate argument that the market urbanist groups, you know, really, really pound hard on. And I think rightly so. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's times where regulating by use makes sense, like you mentioned eliminating major nuisances from where people are living <laughs> with the interest of protecting, you know, public health and public welfare is is very clear. But there is this really good point around when regulating by use tends to get kind of arbitrary or, you know, at least you start to raise question marks about whether whether it makes sense to regulate, you know, an Amazon distribution center, for example, and regulate that out of an area that has big box retail that has failed and now is well positioned for a new use, whereas when the, that big box area was originally built or the mall was originally built, wh whatever that use was, that the thought was that that was going to be kind of a static use. And that having big box retail is going to be successful forever and nothing would come in and disrupt it. And now we've had something come in and disrupt it. And, and there may be a new kind of use for some of these existing buildings unless these properties are completely redeveloped. I understand in some respects that there are potential impacts. You know, there are differences with having oh, an Amazon distribution center versus having a Walmart that people may push back on, but I don't know that regulating by use is the right way to approach that because there may be ways that you could, you know, regulate by performance standards or even have um, site mitigation standards that could help to, you know, ease the integration of a new use where it wasn't before. So on the industrial side of things, I think I think that's a conversation to be had that isn't fully kind of thought out or hasn't really, we haven't really seen that fully come to fruition because it's such a new phenomenon. 
But it is a little bit ironic. It's not necessarily surprising to me, but it is ironic that people want to buy things online and don't want to go to stores, but they also don't want the distribution center near them, which is just a ironic reality. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting to delve a little deeper into why the distribution center isn't going there. And part of it might be zoning, but part of it's also that, you know, if you have a closed Walmart, they're going to have deed restrictions and covenants on the property that forbids it from being sold to anything that's a competitor. And that's just like, that's a standard thing that Walmart puts in all their leases. We have a JCPenney's that has gone out of business like two or three years ago here in Brainerd. The store is closed up, big box store out uh, on the, you know, in the asteroid belt of big box stores. It's kind of prime for something else to go in. It's a, you know, it's a generous size spot. Nothing, it just sits there. It just sits there empty. And it doesn't sit there empty because there isn't another use for it. In fact, they're building similar buildings up the street uh, for new tenants. It sits there because of it's encumbered by this lease agreement and, and all the things that go along with that. And this is where, you know, to me, the, the market urbanist approach is, you know, the conversation that a lot of them are having is is interesting when it focuses on zoning, but when it kind of fetishizes zoning as this anti-market kind of thing where everything else is by default like the market, I think it loses sight of what's going on. For for example, you know, the reason why office buildings in Manhattan are not being redeveloped into office spaces is partially because of zoning. Yes, I won't deny that that's like a, a, a hurdle, but a lot of it's because of how these buildings are financed. Let me simplify this way down to like a, a, a strip mall with, a, with fewer units because I, I think we can do this. If, if you think of a, a building where you would get like $1,000 a month lease on a place and you say, okay, in, in a year I'll get $12,000 from this unit, but no one will pay $12,000 because there's no demand for it. And so you go out in the marketplace and you lower the value or you lower the price to $500. So you cut it in half. What that does in a commercial property is it actually cuts the value of that property in half. Because unlike your own home, the value of a commercial property is related to the rents and the leases that you can get, not related to like the value of the property and the value of the building and all those like hard costs. If you can't get more than $500 a month rent, your property is worth a lot less. So this is why you see office places that are sitting vacant. What they will do is they will let them sit vacant for long, long periods of time. Like, how? why is this sitting vacant? Why don't they lower the price? And if you go talk to them and say, I'd like to get into this office space, but I don't want to pay $1,000 a month, they'll say, I'll tell you what, we'll give you the first year for free if you sign a two-year lease and after one year, you pay $1,000 a month. And you're like, well, why don't I just pay $500 a month? Well, why don't you just pay $500 a month? Because then they would have to report to, you know, when the, when the property refinances, which happens regularly with commercial properties, they'd have to report that the lease monthly is $500 a month. And if they charge you zero for the first 12 months and $1,000 a month after, it's the same amount of money they're collecting, but they can say the lease is $1,000 a month. And so the property stays elevated in price in terms of its appraisal. Okay. If you go and start converting these properties into residential, what you're doing is you're changing the underlying value structure of the thing that you've got financing for. That thing that you've got financing for is not just a thing that you finance. It's a thing that you financed 
that was then sold onto a secondary market was then chopped up into a bunch of little things, securitized with similar products around the country, and is now owned by the school district pension fund and grandma's, you know, uh, estate and uh, some Chinese corporation that needs cash flow. It's it it. it it's not like a product that you can just like unwind really easily and say, we're going to take five of these units and make them into residential. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so great. Like let's listen to the market urbanists and let's reform zoning. Like I'm all for it. Let's do it. But let's not be so naive as to think that like, that's the only problem. And that like, you know, the quote unquote free market is going to take care of all the rest of this. Because the reality is, is, the, the, the top-down macro economy that a lot of people like to think of as a free market is like a rigged system for a certain type of development style. It's not designed to be responsive to what people are demanding or what people can pay. It's designed to be responsive to what can be securitized, what can get funding, what can get wrapped into a, a, a Federal Reserve you know, QE purchase, that type of thing, as opposed to like what demands are on the ground. And I think when we when we simplify, oversimplify and overlook that, it comes across as a little silly because the zoning is such a small fraction of where the friction actually is in the system. I wish that the perfect zoning code could solve all of the world's problems. Yeah. <laughs> solve Mideast peace. Yeah. Cure cancer. I, well, you know, get while my kid I, to school on time. Yeah, no. I'll yeah, lie. exactly. Yeah, while while I I totally agree that zoning reform is severely needed, and zoning codes in so many cities are just generally they haven't been modernized for a very long time, and it's important that that happens. It's not going to solve all of our problems. Um, it's not like a land value tax. <laughs> the land value tax will solve all of our problems too. There, there yeah. is a certain, I, I will say this, and I say this recognizing that, you know, there's some people who could throw the hypocrite label at me and I'm, I will accept that. There's a thing with the land value tax, the Georgias that you get, where it's like, here's a simple solution to this really complex problem. And I, I get that vibe from not all the market urbanists, but like a, a significant number of people who are part of the market urbanist conversation Who's like, you know, if we just did X, you know, fix zoning or eliminate zoning um, and, and went to this like libertarian land use approach, that it would solve all these problems. And yeah, I find that to be overly simplistic, bordering on kind of buffoonery in, in, when it actually comes down to like what happens on the ground. Well, we were just talking about case law. <laughs> yeah, before we, were. we uh... that's, that's the kind of people we are. Uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, we just talk about case law before we start. No, I'm studying for my AICP, but it's important to consider that like okay, let's let's all abolish zoning completely. Let's start all over, throw everything out. I mean, you may get very similar cases that just go right back through the argumentation and and it would be interesting to see how some of those rulings would turn out in this day and age. But it, it, does, it doesn't necessarily mean that we wouldn't just end up having zoning again <laughs> later down the road. Right, right. Can I, can I give you an analogy? Sure. Because um, I, I do, I mean, I think we need like massive zoning reform, right? Yeah. Like I, I do think that the industrial age zoning or the early 1900s zoning that was responding to the end of the second industrial revolution 
was, you know, maybe apropos at its time, but has run its course big time and needs to go away. But let's, there have been places where humans have gone in and cut down jungle or cut down rainforest. And then people have gone back in and said, we want to restore this habitat. We want to restore the jungle or restore the uh, the rainforest. And they'll look around and they'll say, well, what type of plants belong here? And they'll, and they'll go out and they'll plant things that belong in the rainforest. And what they found is that it is almost impossible. In fact, I'm going to say impossible, but I, I, I don't know that in an absolute sense, but the, the, the things that I've seen suggest that it is almost impossible to recreate a rainforest by stuff that we would plant, like go out and say, all right, you put this many of this kind of tree, you space them this far apart, you put this kind of tree, you space that apart, you throw these seeds in. Because what you see is that a rainforest is this really like complex thing that has emerged from the interaction of all these like complex different systems coming together, these different flora and different fauna, uh, all kind of acting independently in this framework coming together to create a rainforest. And as a human, if we go out and say, okay, we're going to plant this, plant this, plant this, poof, what do we get? You get a lot of weeds and you get a lot of stuff that like doesn't work well together because it didn't actually emerge the way that this natural ecosystem emerges. I look at cities as this way. So we went in and we used Euclidean zoning and, and, and a lot of, you know, finance and, and big programs, urban renewal, you know, like, the, the, you know, all the automobile regulations on how we're going to design streets to basically like gut these cities, tear buildings down, convert them into parking lots. And we've created basically like a deforested, we've like wrecked the rainforest of a community. We've, we've, we've destroyed the ecosystem. And now the idea is, well, let's just remove the zoning and let it like grow back. And I'm telling you, what you would get is you'd get a bunch of weeds. You would not get the complex ecosystem that you're hoping to get, particularly if you are just throwing in the, the you know, the nitrous fertilizer of the crazy <laughs> financial system that we have overlaid on this now today. Yeah. You well, get, yeah, you have lots of other distortions that would yes. lead you to have a rainforest of Applebee's and Taco John's. That's everywhere. exactly, <laughs> thank you. That's exactly what you would get. Like, like so, let's, let's not kid ourselves that removing all zoning regulations is going to suddenly create the beautiful walkable urban villages that all you know many of us who probably listen to this show would love to see right. um you know it, it would be it would be chuck e cheese and walmart right. well and let's not even let's not even put a, a, an aesthetic overlay on it let's just say it in a different way it would respond to the marketplace as it exists today which is a top-down corporate engineered marketplace as opposed to a bottom-up kind of human preference uh, marketplace. Uh, you know, you can get uh, a house today in Kansas City as long as it's a single family home. You know, like, like the market will provide you that because there's a whole like daisy chain of government subsidies, uh, secondary market. There, there's, there's all this stuff that's like set up to deliver that product over and over and over. And if you remove the zoning, you're still going to get that same product like over and over and over because that's what the whole rest of the system is designed to deliver. Yeah, it's important to understand the context, the context and the history that brought out the places that we consider to be 
historic and lovely and interesting and, <laughs> you know, may, perhaps built without any zoning in place. Um, but but to think that removing zoning is going it will suddenly make us the people who built those kinds of places um, is kind of a ludicrous suggestion to me because, like you said, there's this is not the same market. This is a completely different market, um, and, and there are many other distortions that are far beyond local influence. That you know, it's, and, and that's not to say that zoning shouldn't be radically reformed. I completely agree with that. And I completely agree that there are, there are, we need to be thinking beyond just use. There, there are other ways to solve issues and we need to be asking ourselves what our expectations really need to be with regard to what our neighbors do. <laughs> I think we've, we've gone way too far in micromanaging outcomes um, but yeah, th this idea that we're going to build like the people of the past is kind of a crazy suggestion. Well, quite pa yeah, Paris, you know, didn't emerge from a state of nature. You know, Paris was created as a culmination of thousands of years of humans experimenting with how to build cities and they copied the best practices and, and built on them. You know, it's, I, I think there is a path forward here though. And I think it does uh, bring in the best of the market urbanism conversation and merges it with other ones. And I, I th this is when we talk about at Strong Towns, this incremental, this idea that neighborhoods sh should grow incrementally. What we're really talking about here is on the bottom end, allowing every neighborhood to not face uh, financial friction, or I'm sorry, regulatory friction in maturing. So you know, there should be no regulatory friction that keeps that single family home from converting to a duplex. There should be no regulatory friction that takes that two, three story building and, and prohibits it from becoming a four or five story building. Like there should be no like big regulatory burden locally that you should have to go through to do that. So allow every neighborhood to adapt, to flex, to change over time. The, the way that I've started to describe this very starkly is that you know, X has to be greater than zero. If X is the rate of change of this neighborhood, it's got to be greater than zero. So you can't oppose all things happening here. Tell me what you will say yes to, and it has to be something more than what is there now. And if if we did that, you know, voluntarily at cities across the country, that, that would be a massive change in our zoning regulations. And I think it would have a, a big impact. But I would also, in a sense, throttle that back. And I think this is where the, the market urbanists tend to get the most cranky with me. I also want to, in addition to changing our street design process and having some form-based codes that would help make sure that the development is compatible with the neighborhood and you're actually building a place where the land values are going up. You're not just short-term mining something for a, a short-term transaction. I would also put a throttle, a limit on how big of a jump you could make in a neighborhood. Because what I want is I want a localized market that responds in a market oriented kind of system. I'm a market urbanist in that sense. Like I want, I want, but I want my market to be based on what people in a local place can afford. You know, what, I, I want it to respond to their salaries, their incomes, their transactions in a marketplace. I don't want the market to be subject to what Zillow can afford to buy in my neighborhood or what 
some insurance company looking to uh, purchase a bunch of class A office space across the country can come in and afford. I want my market to not be influenced by what in an investment sense, if we were a developing nation, would be called a, a hot market or a hot money flow. I don't want my market overwhelmed by outside capital. I want to protect it from that. So allow every neighborhood to evolve but not so rapidly and so quickly in one like large leap that it distorts the underlying land values and makes the market not responsive to local players. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a good place to leave it. So really good conversation. Right. Maybe, mic drop then. We'll yeah, end it right there. That's a good mic drop. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it there. Um, but before we end today, Let's go to the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything we've been reading or watching, listening to, anything that's been on our mind these days. So Chuck, what have you been up to? So I am exhausted. This has been like a, a, just a punishing week in terms of like my schedule. And then last night I'm like, I'm going to go to bed early. And then my daughter was sitting there and I said, would you want to go to the movie with me? And my 17 year old girl said, of course. <laughs> So they don't awesome. have school. They don't have school to Thursday or Friday this week. So, so we went to Dune last night, which I did not see the original Dune. I'm not like steeped in what this Dune story was. So this was all brand new to me. I've heard the critics say it is a gorgeous, beautiful movie, and I agree with that. Like cinematically, it was astounding. It was just amazing. I've also read that it had a confusing plot, and I will agree with that. Like I'd, it was hard to kind of follow at times, and like, okay, I'm not sure what's going on, but I think I kind of got it. And um, you know, it was obvious at the end of it that there's going to be another one, so like, don't expect it to all be wrapped up nicely. And it was kind of cool, and it was a nice time with my daughter. She, uh, at 17 years old, has become kind of fun in that way. She's. I've got one daughter who's a late night person like me and another who is a late early to bed, early morning person like my wife. So we kind of, you know, my late night daughter is the go to the movies with dad. So that was a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, it's good to have that balance, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, so I'm also really tired. I've been really strung out studying for my AICP exam, trying to you shouldn't Just have said that because now I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to ask you how you did. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm reluctant to share that because if I don't pass it, I'm going to be really sad. But you know, I guess I could retake it, but I really don't want to retake it. It'll be if fine. you don't. I'm, if you I'm, don't pass it, I'm going to assume it's because you answered the questions correctly, okay. not the way that the APA would like you to answer them, which is not correctly. Yeah, there are some questions um, on like practice tests where you're kind of like, eh, but you know, they want you to answer things in a very particular way. So there, there are some trick questions that I've come across that make me a little bit nervous for the actual test. You know, there's there's some things that are fairly straightforward, but yeah, I've been I've just been spending a lot of time studying lately, which is making me kind of strung out, drinking too much coffee thinking too much about case law and having, you know, case law now comes up in regular conversations with coworkers and you now. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that's not natural. <laughs> that's not right. Come on. It's so much fun. I mean, I love uh, all these old court cases. They're so interesting. When you and I were chatting, you were like, and that old case, Kilo versus New London. And I'm like, old? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, 2005 was forever ago. Yeah, I didn't study that one in grad school. You know why? Because it was after <laughs> I got done with grad school. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> it is insane. <sighs> well, okay. yeah, I guess um, I'm going to get back to studying so so that I can tell you that I passed it. <laughs> you will do great. I'm, uh, I have faith in you. And if you don't pass, they let you take it over again pain-free. So don't okay. worry about it. All right. Well. And you're you're an awesome planner whether you have AICP behind your name or not. So. Well, thanks. I'm still going to try to pass this thing. We'll see how it goes. All right. Thanks, Chuck. I'll let you go. Um, and thank you, everybody, for joining me today, listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. Bye-bye.